The text for our sermon this morning is Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. When you get in trouble, does your dad or mom promise to fix your trouble? No, not usually. Not usually. Usually, they scold you for doing what you were told not to do. And if they promise you anything, they promise that you'll be in more trouble if you do it again. In the verse that we just read, this is the first time that anyone in the world ever got into trouble. This is when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And right in the middle of scolding them for their sin, God also makes an amazing promise, a promise to one day fix their trouble. God promises to rid the world of sin. Now, the funny thing is, God makes this promise as a threat to the devil, the one who's tempted Adam and Eve to sin. God promises that one day there will be born a special baby who will break the devil's head. That means that he will break the devil's power over people. God will save his people by this special baby. Now, what makes this baby so special? Well, God calls this baby the seed of the woman. And that means that the baby will not have a human dad. He'll just have a human mom. Do you know who that special baby is that didn't have a dad, just had a mom? Yeah, that's right. It was Jesus. God wanted his people to always be waiting and always be ready for the coming of this special baby. And so he kept reminding them that this baby would be born. And one, day, one way that God reminded them was by giving his people special babies. There are many stories in the Bible about very old men and women having a baby. I'm sure you've learned about Abraham and Sarah in Sunday school. They were both very old. They had no children, and they really, really wanted a baby. God gave them one that they named Isaac when, Rebe when Abraham was 100 years old. That's older than a great-grandpa. Isaac grew up, he got married, and he wanted a baby too. And Isaac and his wife had to wait for a very long time as well. When God answered his prayers, his wife had twins, and Isaac was 60 years old. There are many other special babies in the Bible that were born to parents who were very old. God gave his people these babies to help them remember the special promise that God made in the verse that we read just a minute ago. Every time one of these special babies was born, God's people remembered the promise of the special baby who was the, the seed of the woman. Then one day, an angel came to another old man named Zacharias, and the old angel told him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, would have a baby, another special baby, whom they were to name John, and this John would grow up to be a great preacher. Six months later, the angel visited a young lady named Mary, who was Elizabeth's cousin, and the angel told her that she would have a special baby. Only, she wasn't an old lady, she was a young lady, and she didn't have a husband. She was not married. 
So she asked the angel, well, how can that happen? How can I have a baby? And the angel said to her, nothing is impossible with God. Go ask your cousin Elizabeth. Way, way back at the beginning of the Bible, the very first time anybody sinned, God promised to break the power of sin by a special baby. And then God made sure that his people always remembered that promise. Every time they got kind of bored of waiting and started to think it was never going to happen, God would give his people another special baby. So they were always excited for the promise. They waited and waited for this baby to be born, just like you wait to open your presents on Christmas. And this special baby, Jesus, was born on Christmas. That's pretty cool, isn't it? God told us the end of the story right back at the beginning. Well, I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we're going to learn more about these things. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. A writer's greatest skill is the ability to create motifs. A motif is a recurring theme that surfaces now and again, tying all the elements of the story together. Composers do the same thing. You can hear two parts of the same song and think that they're two different songs. A motif unites them so that the different sections make sense. Motifs help you see how the different parts are related. They tie dissimilar elements together. Well, our sermons throughout this Advent season will focus on some of these motifs which God used to create longing and anticipation for the coming Savior. In our text, which is the very first gospel promise, there are motifs which recur regularly throughout the Bible. First, the Savior will be a miracle baby. He's not the seed of the man, he's the seed of the woman. No matter how you slice it, that's a miracle. Secondly, the Savior will take the place of Adam, the first man. You know, like produces like. That is a law of God's creation. The sinner, Adam, can only produce sinners. So this miracle baby will be the new Adam taking the place of the old Adam. That's how he can restore life and righteousness to his people. He's not going to be a sinner like the first Adam. Thirdly, the Savior will come in the place of Adam in order to redeem his seed from their sins. He'll crush the serpent's head. That means that he'll save his people from the power and the rule of the devil. The Savior will be a miracle baby... He will be the new Adam, and he'll redeem his people because he'll truly be one of them. He'll be born of a woman just like everyone else. He will be their kinsman, their kinsman redeemer. God placed these motifs in Old Testament church history to prophesy of the coming of the Savior. These recurring themes created anticipation and longing. So that's our outline this morning. Number one, miracle babies. Number two, younger versus older. And number three, kinsmen redeemers. The miracle baby motif runs like a river through the Old Testament. When the Bible gives genealogies, each generation is called the 
seed of the previous generation's father. For instance, Isaac is Abraham's seed, Jacob is Isaac's seed, and so on. The seed is the source of each generation, and it comes from fathers. But our text says something unusual. The Savior is called the seed of the woman, but the woman doesn't have seed. The promise created anticipation for some kind of miracle baby. That promise is further unopened or further opened up or unpacked in Isaiah 7 verse 14, which reads, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Because he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary, Jesus was prophetically called the seed of the woman. Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit while she was a virgin. The material substance of Jesus' body and soul was taken from Mary. He had a real human body and a real human soul, which were sanctified in the womb so that he was truly man, and yet he was born outside of Adam's broken covenant. Now, even now as I say that, it sounds hard to understand. It's admittedly a hard idea. But it's an idea that God wanted to keep front and center in His people's minds. And so He filled their history with miracle babies. Every time one was born, anticipation for the real miracle baby, the seed of the woman, was heightened. Isaac's the first one. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when he was born. Now there are some very fascinating parallels between the lives of Abraham and Isaac. Just before Isaac was conceived, there was a famine in Canaan. So Abraham sought refuge in a place called Gerar. And while he was there, he lied and said that Sarah was his sister. And he thought they'd kill him for his wife because she was so beautiful. If they thought Sarah was his sister, he reasoned that they'd spare his life since he was her legal guardian. King Abimelech of Gerar hears about this stunning beauty, who incidentally is in her late 80s, and he has her placed in his harem. God comes to Abimelech in a dream and threatens to kill him if he doesn't return the man's wife. Had Abimelech actually taken Sarah, we'd have lingering doubts about Isaac, wouldn't we? Was he really Abraham's son? God protects his promise to Abraham. Well, Isaac is born, grows up, and marries Rebekah. And then a famine comes to Canaan. And Isaac seeks refuge in Gerar of all places. One of Abimelech's sons is king, and we find Isaac resorting to the same trick his father used. Now, the moral of Abraham's story was that if you try to help God keep his promise, it'll blow up in your face. Isaac has failed to learn that lesson, and so he resorts to the same tactic, lie and say she's your sister. Well, just like before, the king takes Rebekah into his harem. And one day, though, he's looking out the window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah horsing around, but in a way that's a bit too intimate for brother and sister. So he knows Isaac has lied. God has again protected his promise. Rebekah was never left alone with the king, so her marriage is preserved and there's no doubt about her sons. Also, like Isaac, I mean Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah are childless for a long time. I mean, to the point of despair. 
Genesis 25, verse 21 reads, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Jacob and Esau, their twin sons, are again miracle babies. About 500 years later, the angel of the Lord visits an old man named Manoah and his wife, who is well past childbearing years, and the angel tells them that they will have a son and that this son will save God's people from their enemies. That sounds an awful lot like Gabriel's words to Joseph, doesn't it? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That miracle baby is Samson. Fast forward many generations again, and just before the birth of Jesus, we find another miracle baby. Luke 1 tells us of an old couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth who had no children. Zacharias is a priest, and while he's ministering in the temple, the angel Gabriel comes and tells him that he and Elizabeth will have a son whom they are to name John. And this son John will be the prophet spoken of in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 9, the forerunner of the Messiah. So just before Jesus, the real miracle baby is born, there's another miracle baby Jesus' very forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now that brings us to our second point, the younger versus the older. Now I think it's fair to say that no births in human history are more important than those of Cain and Abel, because we're literally talking about the first two children ever born in the history of the world. And I think we have very good biblical reason to say that Cain and Abel are twins. Now, maybe you've never heard this before, so let me explain. The Bible uses a very peculiar expression when it describes the conception of children. It's the phrase, he knew his wife and she conceived. Now, we're all smart enough to understand what that means. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. In Genesis 4.25, we read, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Cain and Seth are the first and third sons of Adam and Eve. So where's Abel, the second? Well, go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Read them again together. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and again she bore his brother Abel. It doesn't say she conceived and bore Cain and then conceived again and bore Abel. It says that she conceived and bore Cain and bore his brother Abel. I think it's pretty obvious that Cain and Abel are twins. Now you're wondering, so what? But there's a theme that runs through the Bible. A younger brother unseats an elder brother. In this case, God prefers Cain over I prefers Abel over Cain. So what does Cain do? He murders his twin brother in order to reassert his superiority. You can't prefer him over me if he's dead. And since there are no other sons on earth, he has to be the favorite. But then, Genesis 4.25, we read that Adam and Eve's third son is named Seth because, Eve says, the Lord has appointed me another seed instead of Abel. The Hebrew word Seth appears to derive from an old root word that means substitute. 
And of course, substitution is a major concept in the Bible. Seth takes Abel's place over Cain again. In order to keep this in the minds of God's people, this motif is repeated over and over. And it's most noticeable in Genesis. And that's because Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Whenever an author wants to make an idea central, he puts it right in the beginning of his book. We meet this idea again in Genesis 25, when Jacob and Esau are born. And did you notice the order, Jacob and Esau? Jacob first. God did that. Esau was born first, but he was replaced by the younger. Before they were even born, God told Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger. Remember that Jacob and Esau are miracle babies too. So in this set of twins, both of the motifs, the miracle baby and the younger takes the place of the elder, are connected. A generation later, that scenario plays out again, twice. The first case is the sons, the twin sons of Judah by Tamar. The twins are named Perez and Zerah. Now, while Tamar is in labor, something weird happens. Zerah begins to exit first. He stuck out his hand, so the midwife quickly tied a piece of red yarn around his wrist to indicate that he was the firstborn. But all of a sudden, he pulled his hand back, and the other twin came out first. So they named him Perez, and Perez is the Hebrew word for breakthrough. It's like they were saying, you cut in line. The second case is Joseph's two sons. Manasseh was the elder, Ephraim the younger. And in Genesis 48, there's this weird ceremony where Jacob adopts those two boys as his own. Now what he's actually doing is doubling Joseph's inheritance. He puts the boys in Joseph's place so that when Israel inherits the promised land, Joseph is going to get two shares of territory. But during this ceremony, Joseph places Manasseh on Jacob's right and Ephraim on his left. And when Jacob stretches out his hands to bless the boys, to place on their heads, he crosses his arms so that he places his right hand on Ephraim's head. Now, Joseph knows what this means, and so he tries to stop Jacob. No, Dad, the elder's on your right side. And Jacob replies, I I know what I'm doing, son. This ceremony is a double shift. Joseph is moved ahead of ten older brothers, and his younger son, Ephraim, is made the elder. It perpetuates the motif of the elder being replaced by the younger. Now, you still may be thinking, so what? But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49, it explains to us the reason for this motif. Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam is of the earth. The second Adam is of heaven. The first Adam became a living being. The second Adam gives life. Believers are children of the first Adam, but are born again as children of the second Adam. So Jesus says in Isaiah 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. God puts a miracle baby motif in His people's history in order to create a longing and an anticipation for the Savior who would Himself be a miracle baby. And God also puts a younger takes the place of the elder motif in His people's history 
to create a sense of anticipation for the Savior who would himself be the second Adam taking the place of the first Adam. Now this younger takes the place of the elder motif is a two-sided prophecy. Because first and foremost, it refers to Jesus. But it also refers to His church as the covenant transitions from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know, when the flood came, all of Cain's descendants were drowned. Noah was a descendant of Seth. After the flood, all the Old Testament saints were descendants of Shem, Noah's oldest son. But when Noah prophesies about his son's futures, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth is the father of the nations of Europe. We learn that in Genesis 10. The meaning of this prophecy is that Shem, the eldest, will temporarily have the position of favor as the eldest. But eventually, he will be replaced by Japheth, the youngest son. Japheth's descendants will take over Shem's tents. They'll have Shem's place. Now, the book of Acts records the fulfillment of this prophecy. When the Jewish descendants of Shem rejected Jesus, killed him and his apostles, the gospel spread where? Into Europe. And for over a thousand years, Christianity was the unifying feature of the Western world. America is a direct result of this prophecy. The younger Japheth took the place of the elder Shem because the second Adam took the place of the first Adam. And that brings us to our third point, the kinsman redeemer. In Micah 6 verse 4 God describes Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage as redemption. He redeemed his people. Egypt was a picture of the bondage of sin. And so Canaan was a picture of heaven, the heavenly rest that God promised his people. And that's why Israel was strictly commanded to keep each plot of land within the family to whom God had entrusted it. Having an heir then was extremely important because if there was no heir, the land would fall into nothing. There was no such thing as public land. Every square inch of the promised land was owned by the families of the 12 tribes. So there were two dangers that a family could face. They could fall on hard times and be forced to sell their land. Losing your share of the promised land was like losing your place in heaven. The other danger was if they had no heir. If a family failed to produce an heir, their heritage would be lost. And worse yet, their whole lineage would be cut off from the church. It would be like they had never even existed. So God put two mechanisms in place to keep this from happening. And he called both of these systems redemption. God established that the redeemer in both of those cases must be a close kinsman. When a man fell on hard times and, and was forced to sell some of his land, a near kinsman could redeem it for him. This kinsman would be redeeming his brother's heritage. Or if a man died without an heir, the closest unmarried kinsman would marry the widow and their first son would be considered the child and legal heir of the dead man. So that this way, the lineage and the family property wouldn't be lost. Now the book of Ruth is a beautiful depiction of this system. Boaz fulfills both forms 
of the kinsman redeemer. And we always think of Boaz as saving poor Ruth. In reality, he was saving Elimelech, Naomi's late husband, because he and his two sons had died. So his name was going extinct in the church. Plus, all of his property would be forfeited. So Naomi's family was as good as dead. As part of marrying Ruth, Boaz redeemed all of Elimelech's land. And then Obed, Ruth's son, by Boaz, inherited Elimelech's estate. He was Elimelech's legal heir. And that explains the people's reaction to Obed's birth. They say to Naomi, not to Ruth, to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And then we read that it was Grandma Naomi, not Ruth, who nursed and cared for baby Obed as if he were her child. Now, there are two beautiful things to notice in that story. First, God resurrected Elimelech's dead family. And secondly, Obed is King David's grandpa. Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh. So Jesus, who will be resurrected from the dead and who redeems us from death, descends from a redeemed family that has been resurrected from the dead. That system then, that seems so weird and foreign to us, depicts redemption in an amazing way. And God instituted it for Christ's sake because it specifically serves the virgin birth. This motif created a deep sense of longing and anticipation for the coming Savior who would be our kinsman, our kinsman redeemer. The Gospels give two genealogies of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 gives Mary's side. Matthew 1 gives Joseph's side. Both lists run back to a man named Salaphiel, a direct descendant of David. Jesus is the son of David by birth through Mary, and he's the son of David by law through Joseph. So let's just recap briefly. The miracle baby motif created a longing in the hearts of God's people for the coming Savior. He would be the ultimate miracle baby. Look, it's one thing, it's clearly a miracle for an old man and his postmenopausal wife to have a baby, but it's going to occur the same way that all natural births do. A virgin birth, however, and there's nothing like that in nature. It's the purest of miracle. The younger takes the place of the elder motif, created a longing in the church's heart for the coming Savior, the one who would take Adam's place and do for them what Adam failed to do. Then the institution of the kinsman redeemer, whether by land purchase or by marriage, was established for Jesus' sake. It created anticipation in the church's heart for the true kinsman redeemer. Because Jesus does for real what the kinsman redeemer merely pictured. He redeems us to himself and he resurrects us first from the death of sin, and then from physical death to live with Him forever. The Old Testament saints lived in anticipation that the Savior would come. And when He did, He would fulfill these motifs. He wouldn't just repeat them. He would fulfill them, and that's how we'd recognize Him when He came. Let us pray.